0: What is the secret to the miracles of jesus christ now that's really an important question we're going to be answering that question and talking about that today good morning good afternoon good evening my name is rod him
1: and i'm janice
0: and this is bible discovery tv welcome great to have you with us as we discover the bible You know, this is the book of Luke, and I find this fascinating as we begin to read it. And somebody to help us out with this book is Corey with Ryan. Corey, what's going on?
2: Yeah, well, today, uh, part of our reading is Luke chapter 8 and the parable of the sower. So I'm going to be focusing in on that. Ryan? Ryan?
3: Yeah, well, as Corey mentioned today, we are in the third gospel called Luke, but Luke and the other gospel writers often quote from what many scholars refer to as the fifth gospel, and that's Isaiah. So today I'm focused on him and his prophecies of Jesus Christ.
0: You know, the Bible is, of course, the Old Testament is, of course, a lot of the New Testament things because the New Testament quotes the Old Testament Mm -hmm. over 200 times, very interesting, Jen.
1: The Lord is the shepherd of his people is my segment today. Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her, Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17.
0: Luke chapter 7 through 8, that's our reading today, and this is absolutely amazing. As we begin to go through these gospel messages, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we, we've been doing this for a few weeks, and it's really, really exciting. Uh, I just need to explain that God is moving on the hearts of many people. Some of the most shocking and important miracles of Jesus were the times he brought people back from the dead, what wall did that come off of? It didn't come off any wall. It came from the Bible. It was a serious marker of his spiritual authority. And surely, people were astounded by it. Now today, apparently, a scientific-defined miracle is an event that is the probability of 1 in 200 with 15 zeros behind it. In other words, it's basically impossible. In our Western society... We tend to reject the idea of miracles. You see, if a claim can't be explained naturally or scientifically, we dismiss it. Miracles are impossible. Things like them just don't happen. Even so, when the birth announcement of Jesus Christ was given to Mary, do you know what the angel said? For the angel said, for with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. Luke chapter one, verse 37. Now, I I need you to understand and I need you to think this through because we say that we believe in miracles, but do you? Because a miracle is whether big or small, it's big or small in our eyes. A miracle isn't big or small in God's eyes. He's a power that has no source. He is the power. And I think that we should get our Bible guides out and turn to today's passage as we talk about death to life. Father, help us today. We're going to focus on this, and we're going to talk about it. Many people today have thought about the miracles you do, big and small, in our minds, but with the mind of Christ, we can say this mountain be removed, and it will be. We can say this stream be changed, and it will be, if we have the will of God in our hearts, if we have the purpose of God in our mind, and if we have the strength of God in ourselves. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, and we said together, amen. Now, we'll send you a Bible guide. If you go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com, go there, and uh, you can click on the page. It'll take you to a page for donations. Thank you for your donations. We certainly appreciate them. I don't tell you how much to donate. I believe the Holy Spirit will tell you how much to donate because I trust the Lord. So that's something good, amen. Now, let's look at this, because this is Luke chapter 7, and we're going to begin with verse 11. Listen. Now, it happened in the day after that he went into a city called Nain. Many of his disciples went with him. A city called Nain, and his disciples went with him. And a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out. The only son of his mother, he's the only one. And she was a widow. She had no other men who could help her. And a large crowd from the city was with her. Now this is important. The miracles of Jesus Christ always come just when we need him. Now we may have a de- decision that we think we need him, but just when we need him, miracles come. We must keep our minds, souls, and bodies close to Christ, and follow him more than ever. We don't just simply say, gee, God, I need a miracle, show me a miracle. We don't do that. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees did. We, don't, we are serving the Lord, and we're doing the things he's assigned us to do in our work, rest, or play, and we say, Lord, okay, if I need a miracle, help me. And you know what God does? God does miracles his way. And that's important for us to remember. We don't just call on a miracle to be done our way. We say, Lord, do the miracle your way. And I've seen many miracles, let me tell you. God's done a miracle in this ministry over and over again. With money, with everything else we've had. We had so many times. And I didn't know that we would need a miracle. And I said, Lord, somehow help us. And God always did. Always did. Keep that in mind. Now, verse 7 to 13. This is interesting. Watch this. When the Lord saw her, this is important, listen carefully. He had compassion on her. And he said to her, Do not weep. What? Her son is dead. She does not have a husband. You don't want her to weep, God? Jesus tells the grieving mother not to weep. We should keep our spirits in line with the Holy Spirit who knows our grief. Beloved, listen to me carefully. Listen to me carefully. Right now is the time when we grieve and have sadness and things happen. But if we believe in God, let's keep our spirits aligned with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit knows we grieve. The Holy Spirit helps us to grieve properly. And the Holy Spirit brings us back from the grief into life. The Holy Spirit does that. Not any person. It's the Spirit of God. And if we are Christian, we understand what death is, a transition. We get it. So we need to remember that. Now let's go on to Luke chapter 14 to 17. It gets even better. Then he came, watch this now. And he touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, I speak to you, arise. Now, you have to understand seven words here. Young man, I say to you, arise. That's all he said. So he who was dead then sat up and began to speak. What? He raised him from the dead, and he presented him to his mother, and then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all of Judea and all the surrounding region. Beloved, listen to me carefully. Listen, listen, listen. Jesus Christ raised the dead boy to life with his word. With his word. The word of God is quick. The word of God is powerful, bringing new life and new healing, and the Word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword from the Word of God. It's time for us to understand that the Word of God is forever, beloved. These words are the words of the Holy Spirit. They're forever. And Holy Spirit, we need to understand this Word as we're reading it now, and we're going through the New Testament. I pray for everybody who's watching me, Whether they know you or not, whether they understand what they're doing or not, whether they realize. But Father, there are many who realize the power of your word. And I say, Lord Jesus, come down, come down and speak to our hearts. Show us your word. Teach us your path. Show us the way that you have planned for us. Help us, Father, in churches. Help us, Father, to turn everything over to you. Everything falls under you. The definition from your word, Ecclesia, the church. In Jesus' wonderful name. And we all said together, amen and amen. Beloved, remember this. Submit yourself to the word of God. God will show you and God will help you to live for him as every day we get up and we continue to live in these times. Hi, Rod Hember here. We go through the Bible every year from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Now you can join us and watch at the time you like by searching Bible Discovery TV on the Roku box or on Amazon Fire TV. Anytime you want to watch us, we're there. Get a hold of it. Watch us anytime you want to.
3: Today, we find ourselves halfway between the four Gospels, but you know, many scholars would say that there's actually a fifth. See, even casual readers notice that the Gospel writers quote the prophet Isaiah a lot. Of course, we first met this prophet back in 2 Kings chapter 19, but his book is extremely significant because he wrote like he knew Jesus as well as any disciple ever would. That's why some scholars have nicknamed this book the fifth Gospel. Check it out. Although technically a prophet of Judah, Isaiah was really an international messenger as he spoke God's judgment on entire peoples across the vast region. His name means Yahweh is salvation and was first called by God to be a prophet in the year that King Uzziah died. In fact, his 40-year career spanned the reign of four kings. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Isaiah's call commenced with a dramatic vision in which the Lord revealed to him the grueling nature of his mission. Though God really put him to task, Isaiah was steadfastly obedient to God, even to the point of prophesying naked for three years. However, his prophecies were not all doom and gloom and judgment. He is a good-news prophet with a message of hope and salvation, who foretells a glorious messianic age when God's kingdom will rule upon the earth. This didn't go unnoticed. Isaiah contains so many messianic prophecies that his book has been nicknamed the fifth gospel. In fact, New Testament writers quote Isaiah about 50 times, more than any other book. He's also been called the Evangelical prophet, because although the book was inked 700 years before Jesus was born, he wrote like he knew Jesus as well as any disciple ever would. While we know much about Isaiah's career, the prophet says little of himself. We do know that he was the son of Imaz, was married to a prophetess, and that they had at least two sons. His eloquence of speech and easy access to the kings may also suggest that he was an educated noble. In fact, Jewish tradition even claims Isaiah was a member of the royal family, first cousin to King Uzziah. Although the Bible does not reveal how he died, the pseudepigraphal Jewish text called The Martyrdom and Ascension of Isaiah claims that he was arrested and sawed in half by Manasseh. Apparently, absorbed in a vision, Isaiah's eyes stayed open and he didn't cry out in pain but his lips moved as though he was talking with God. So as I mentioned in this segment, while the Bible doesn't tell us how Isaiah died, another non-biblical book called The Martyrdom and Ascension of Isaiah claims that he was arrested during the reign of Hezekiah's son Manasseh, the most notorious king of Judah. Isaiah was charged with falsely predicting the destruction of Judah, and he was ordered to repeat these words, "...everything I said has been lies, and Manasseh is good." Well, he obviously refused, and an executioner used a wooden saw to cut him in two. Interestingly, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, might actually refer to this merciless execution, as the writer, speaking of the Old Testament heroes, says, some were sawed in half. If it was Manasseh that murdered Isaiah, then it does add a layer of irony to the story, because the Bible informs us that this wicked king Manasseh eventually repented himself and came to saving faith. So Isaiah's godly witness may very well have played a role in this." And you know, you and I should remember that. Our faithful living for the Lord is, is, a, is more important than we think. Non-believers are watching us, so we need to be faithful witnesses for the Lord, not just in word, but also in deed.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting because when you begin to think about that, um, Manasseh was this evil, I mean, we, we call him Manasty. Mm-hmm. you know, because that's our nickname, Manasty. But he repented and that just drives me crazy because he needed to be squished by God. But he repented and the Lord took him down a path. Now, in eternity, if we believe the Bible, he sees Isaiah, mm. who he probably yeah. had saw in half. <laughs> yeah. So now you're faced with this reality and what do you do? And that reminds me that we will have to spend eternity with each other. <laughs> I know Christians who can't get along with each other and they stay away from each other. But in eternity, what are they going to do?
3: Yeah, you've got
0: to work that out. You've got to, you, know, you may not have the ability, the resources here, but you've got to work yeah. that out.
3: The story of Manasseh is, to me, one of the greatest turnaround stories of all oh, yeah. history. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this, this guy was a bad dude. He was really, really bad, mm-hmm. you know, and God saved him. So if God can save him he can save anybody. Yeah. You know mm-hmm. and and so I I love that. I love that he's in in heaven now and that I will get to meet him mm-hmm. one day.
0: Yeah, I know. And and that's really true. And uh, but be, that's what the Lord said. So Anyway, there you go. Okay, Corey.
2: All right, well, changing gears a little bit, Luke chapter eight, Jesus tells us the parable of the sower. So this is a farmer who is spreading seed, a very specific seed for his farm. So this got me thinking about ancient farming techniques. I mean, even today, the concept behind farming is pretty simple. I mean, we need food to eat, we have ground, we have seed, we're gonna grow some food to eat. But we all know that farming isn't just as simple as growing stuff because we have a lot of challenges that we need to face. Plants have needs just like people have needs. So you and I are going to be taking a look at some ancient farm uh, you know, tools and tricks and technology and uh, that they were able to come up with. So let's take a look. Due to its integral value in ancient society, quite a bit is known about the ancient methods of farming. In biblical Israel, the act of sowing fields with seed occupied four months of the year, and it began immediately following the first rain of the season. The timing of this rain was considered essential to the livelihood of the people, which is reflected in the fact that God includes a reliable first rain in his list of how he will bless an obedient Israel, but an unreliable first rain in the case of their disobedience. This first rain served to soften the ground so that it could be plowed for sowing. If the rain was early, farmers risked their seeds drying out and dying before more regular rain would fall. If the first rain was too late into the season, the crops risked not having enough time to take root before the full heat of the summer, which could mean scorching and crop loss. In Israel, plowing seems to have been done exclusively for the purpose of sowing seed. The fields would be plowed, seed would be scattered over the field, and then the field would be plowed again in the opposite direction to cover the seed. An alternate method to replowing the field was to allow cattle or herd animals to walk on the field. Ancient plows were not much different from modern wooden plows. Their tips for digging into the earth were made of metal, generally bronze or iron, while the rest of the plow was wooden. There was a handle or two for the farmer to raise or lower the point into the ground, and the plow was attached to either a single animal or a team of animals via a wooden yoke on the animal's shoulders. Oxen were the most common animals used for plowing, but donkeys and young cows are also known to have been used to help direct the animals, a goad would be used. A goad was a wooden stick with a sharp metal point to direct the animals with on one end, and the other end could have a small metal shovel on it to loosen mud that would get stuck on the plow tip. In hilly or mountainous areas where plows could not be used, farmers would have to plow by hand using hoes. Experiencing the hard labor of double plowing, some ancient farmers developed an innovative plow that reduced their time investment in the field. It was called the seed drill. The seed drill was made from wood and leather and was attached to the plow. It was essentially a funnel with an attached pipe leading down to just behind the plow tip. Seeds would be dropped into the funnel, would travel down the pipe to the ground behind the plow tip where they would be covered by the falling soil created by the plow. This meant that the farmer needed to plow only once, and their seed would all be covered immediately and be safe from hungry birds. While it's possible that one farmer with well-trained plow animals could operate a seed drill by themselves, from existing artistic representation, it seems that this was often done with two or three people. So, I hope you found that interesting. I know it was loosely connected to what we 're talking about today, but it does provide context for the lives of ancient individuals and 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 how they had to use just like we do. We use the tools that are at our disposal in order to survive and in order to live well uh, and you know they did it, we did it, it so it's always just interesting to put into context where people are coming from, because we do live in a very different time and place.
0: Yeah, we do. In fact, a lot of people uh, live to eat. Um, And I, I of course, had to change my idea to eat to live.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And, but, you know, we've worshiped, we've got networks, you know, with the food and all that stuff, and we worship the food. But this is really interesting because this teaches us that the humankind have have always had this trouble of worshiping things that they see and, and all of that. But God gave food to us to eat and to enjoy.
2: Well, and it is necessary. If you don't have enough of it, it does it, it becomes an obsession. And ironically, if you have too much of it, it can also become an obsession. So, so obsession moderation. is just obsession is a human problem.
0: Yeah, it's, it really is. That's fascinating. Janet?
2: The Lord is the shepherd of his people is what
1: I've titled this segment. Uh, chapter 7 of Luke is one of my favorite chapters for many reasons. But uh, when we're introduced to it at first, we hear about this centurion servant um, who is healed by Jesus, not even going. Jesus is going to the centurion's house, but because of the faith of the centurion being a military man, and if you haven't read it before, you can read it for yourself in Luke chapter 7. Jesus doesn't even go to the centurion's house, which he is on his way to heal his servant. And yet at the word of Jesus, they go back and it is found that from that time the servant has been healed. And then we go on, beginning at verse 11, to Jesus raising the son of a widow. And this would have been so horrifying for this woman, not only because she's lost her son and she's a widow, she has no husband, this would have been her only sustainability in her society at that time. And so it would have been traumatic on on so many different levels, but we, we see just this short little spot in the Bible, but so much richness in here and we see this scene that Jesus comes upon and and there's there's the gate of the city and and behold a dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother she was a widow and a large crowd from the city was with her now let's understand that there would have been weeping and wailing for for the death of this of this man and when the lord saw her he had compassion and he said to her do not weep and one of these things i always pause and i think what a, a profound thing for jesus to say in this time and in this scene do not weep because doesn't he realize she's lost everything and he came and he touched the open coffin and those who carried him stood still so you can imagine this scene this tumultuous scene and Jesus looks at the at the mother who's lost her son and says do not weep and then he touches the processional that's going through and they stop and he speaks the word and the young man sits up from the dead and begins to speak this is incredible where am I going with the Lord as the shepherd of his people? My time is running out, so I'm going to shift now. I'm going to shift to the opening verse. Now it happened the day after, and we're talking about him healing the centurion's servant, the day after that, that Jesus went into a city called Nain. Now, if you look up that word Nain in Hebrew, it means green pastures or lovely, beautiful, and I stopped and I thought to myself, Jesus was speaking and demonstrating to the people in that scene who he was, but he was also speaking forward in time to all of us that he is the shepherd. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one that at a word, at a touch, at a breath, at his thought, he takes dead things and brings them to life. He takes broken things and he mends them. This is who our God is. This is who our Lord Jesus Christ is. And that green pastures reminded me of the Lord is our shepherd. He is the shepherd of his people. And David wrote it so well. Listen to it in this context. The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want because this is what God does for each one of us. Each one of us in our death, Because of sin, he raises us to life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, even in Maine. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me.
0: It's important for us to realize that prayer is very significant because we extend ourselves. Now, prayer is not what we do or say, but here's what we can plan on praying. Father, help us today. Lord, help me to remember my heavenly position with you. (laughs) I don't remember that, I'm so preoccupied with this life, but help me to understand that I have a place in heaven with you and with my family, and with others, in Jesus' name, Amen.